Our scripture lesson today begins in chapter 49 of the book of Genesis. We'll read 49 verses 29 through 33 and on through 51 through 6. Hear now these words. Then he charged them, saying to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my ancestors in the cave in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, in the land of Canaan, in the field of a- that Abraham brought from a- Ephraim the Hittite as a burial site. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were purchased from the Hittites. When Jacob ended his charge to his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph threw himself on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded the physicians in his service to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. They spent 40 days in doing this, for that is the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. When the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph addressed the household of Pharaoh. If now I have found favor with you, please speak to Pharaoh as follows. My father made me swear an oath. He said, I am about to die. In the tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me go up so that I may bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, Thanks be to God. Amen. Good morning, my friends. My name is Scott Gilliland, and I'm the senior pastor here at Arapahoe United Methodist Church. And I want to welcome you to worship this morning or whenever you're joining us for worship. Uh, We give you thanks for being with us during this time. And if you're just now joining us and you're not yet receiving communication from our church and you'd like to be in the loop to know what's happening in the life of AUMC, I invite you to go to our website, arapahoumc.org new, and there you'll find a 10-second form to fill out, and that'll sign you up for our weekly, not daily, but our weekly email newsletter so that you can know more about who we are as a church and how you might be able to get better engaged. You'll also receive a communication from myself and other pastor on staff just to let you know that we're glad that you're with us and to answer any questions you may have. We are beginning a new sermon series this month for the month of August called Unmasked, where we are looking at some of the things in our life that our prevailing sort of generic American culture does its best to cover up. It doesn't really give us, it make us equipped with tools to handle well, and then how our faith can help us to reveal and respond um, to these things in our life, especially given the season in which we find ourselves. In the last several months, I don't know if you're like me, I've noticed that there are some failures in our prevailing culture that have been exposed as a result of this pandemic. So let's talk about those things for these five weeks. To get us to our topic today, I want to tell you about my grandfather. Here's a picture of me and Poppy. He was Jim Gilliland to everybody else. We were just in the process of carving a jack-o'-lantern in that photo, and that was one of our things. Uh, 
Poppy and my grandmother, Bami, or Ann, uh, they grew up, or they lived in Fort Worth while I was growing up. They were the in-town grandparents, so I was over there at least once a week, especially during cowboy season. So we had a lot of things, but one of my things with Poppy was carving jack-o'-lanterns. If you'll look at that picture one more time, you might see on his shirt the words Cowtown Marathon written there. Poppy was proud of many shirts that bore those words because he was one of the four men who started the Cowtown Marathon in its inception, and he was the one runner. The other three were businessmen that saw a business opportunity, but he had a passion for running, and that was his baby. If you're a runner or you're a native of Fort Worth, you know the Cowtown's a pretty big deal these days, and he was certainly proud of it. And he was involved in, in running that marathon. In fact, every year before the race was run, he would go out the morning of at like some ungodly hour, like 3 a.m. And he would check the course to make sure that it was safe to run because it would be run in the winter. And um, that was his passion in life up until uh, very late in his life, almost to his death, when he was beginning to lose his battle with Alzheimer's and was unable to lead in the way that he once was able to. So a few years ago, several years ago, in fact, uh, Reagan, my wife and I, we were touring a, a seminary considering a call to ordain ministry. And it was then that I got the call from my dad that Poppy was in the hospital unexpectedly, and it didn't look good. In fact, they expected him to die within 24 hours. I was not in town. I had no way to get back in time to say goodbye, and so this was really my dad letting me know that this was probably the end of Poppy's life. And he had begun losing his battle with Alzheimer's by that point. You know, Reagan and I had been married for some time, and I never really got the sense that Poppy really knew who she was every time he saw her. And so there was that part of me that wanted to invite that peace, right, that says, you know what, it was time. You know, Poppy would have wanted this. He didn't want to live the next 20 years of his life, you know, steeped in Alzheimer's. This, that maybe this is a good thing. And I told myself that over and over and over again. You know, when you're the family member that's going to seminary, people expect you to give the eulogy at the funeral, right? And uh, my grandfather was not much of a pew-sitter. He was nominally Episcopalian. By that I mean he, he said he believed in Jesus, and I believe he did, and he just didn't find his way into church that often. So when they went to the Episcopal church nearby for his funeral to be arranged, you know, that church wasn't too keen on Willie Nelson music being played as part of the service, and he loved Willie Nelson. And so my family was kind of confused as to what to do, and that's when my younger brother, Jake, had this idea that sounded crazy at first. What if we had his service at the sports bar? You know, Poppy spent a lot of time at the sports bar right near their apartment where he lived, and at first it sounded nuts, and then it started to sound like a pretty good idea. They had a large event space. We could throw a garage door open, and we could play all the Willie Nelson tunes we wanted to, so that's what we did. My very first eulogy ever in life was given in a sports bar. How about that? And we wore Hawaiian shirts, you know, because Poppy loved Hawaiian shirts, and he loved the beach and tropical life. My grandparents did a lot of traveling, and we sang I'll Fly Away, and, and, and so many many, you know, few hundred people packed into this place because Poppy was something of a local celebrity with the Cowtown and everything. And, and, you know, there were a lot of smiles and there were some tears, but it was a celebration of life. And we yelled aloha and we wore our Hawaiian shirts and I did my best to send, send my grandfather off as best I could. Then when it was done, we said our goodbyes. I got in the car and drove back home with Reagan. And we didn't have kids at this time. I got inside the house and I took off that Hawaiian shirt and I put on, I imagine, a t-shirt and athletic shorts. And I sat down on my couch and suddenly this feeling came over me. 
like this little pit in my stomach that had been there but had been so easy to push aside. But it was beginning to grow and, and rapidly. And I felt this heaviness come over me that I hadn't expected. And, and clearly something in me changed because Reagan saw something about my face shift and she said, Scott, are, are you feeling okay? And I sat there in that heaviness and as that pit grew larger and larger. And the only words I could force out of my mouth were, I just miss him so much. And then I just wept. And I don't know if it was for three minutes or for three hours, but all I could do is just weep as this grief just overcame me. No amount of Hawaiian shirts, no amount of alohas, no amount of celebrating his life to, could take the place of this grief that was now overwhelming me. Have you ever been in a place like that? Do you know how that pit feels? Have you ever been overwhelmed by this sensation of grief that you didn't feel prepared for? I mean, we live in a culture that we, we've turned funerals into celebrations of life, right? We've got to always be positive and happy, not just in the midst of grieving, but just all the time. Everything's good all the time, right? We live in a social media world. We're, we're in a, a land of move forward, don't look back. It's time to move on, right? So the question that I want us to consider today as we're unmasking grief is this. In a culture of positivity and just move on, how can our faith lead us and help us to grieve? I found myself this week reading, again, the story of Jacob's death and Joseph's response to his death in the book of Genesis. And maybe this isn't a story that you've ever spent time with, and maybe you don't even know who Jacob and Joseph are. So let's back up for a moment. In the book of Genesis, there's Abraham. And Abraham is the one whom God makes a covenant with. He is, he is so important for this Jewish tradition because God says, through you, all the world will be blessed to Abraham. And then Abraham has a son named Jacob. And that's who we see in this story as an old man. And Jacob, uh, he's an interesting character, another sermon for another week. But he ends up going through this wrestling experience with God, and God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And so that's why we see the name Israel used in this text as well. I'll say more about that in one moment. And then Jacob has a son named Joseph. And even if you've never read the Bible, maybe you've heard of Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. I'll be honest, that musical kind of beats me down. But maybe you love it to each their own, right? Um, but Joseph had that, that fun, uh, colorful coat, right? That's because he was Jacob's favorite son. And his brothers uh, abused him, beat him, sold him into slavery. And out of those chains, Joseph would rise to become second in command to Pharaoh. That's a big deal. Egypt is the prevailing kingdom in his time. That is like the big time show. That's the big nation. And so for Joseph, a non-Egyptian, to rise to VP of Egypt, that he's the pinnacle of what is possible with God's spirit behind you. So that gives us a reference point for who these people are. So Jacob tells Joseph, I'm, I'm going to die, and then he dies. And, and there's this little line, though, that's kind of a blink or you'll miss it line I want us to center on as we begin. It says in, in chapter 50, I believe in verse 2, it says, Joseph commanded the physicians in his service to embalm his father. And then it says, so the physicians, these Egyptians, embalmed Israel. Now, 
follow me for a second. I might be reading too far between the lines. I do that occasionally. I'm taking artistic license, perhaps. But, you know, the book of Genesis was not written by one singular author. Like many of the books of the Bible, it was assembled from multiple sources. Uh, Scripture is this beautiful woven tapestry uh, of ideas and voices and thoughts. And, and in the book of Genesis, one of those sources comes from what would become the northern kingdom of Israel. After the Israelites leave Egypt and they find the promised land, over time there's this northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel was not just the name for Jacob, it was also the name for the people. It served a twofold purpose. And embalming, that might be a word you don't think much of. That's like for mummification, right? This is what the Egyptians were known for. Well, embalming is a really time-consuming, expensive process. It took weeks to be completed. So embalming didn't happen to just anybody. It was basically reserved for royalty or people like royalty in the Egyptian kingdom. And so this little statement, the physicians embalmed Israel, we might blink and miss it, but maybe there's something more significant happening here. Maybe what the Scripture is also saying is that Egypt honored like royalty Israel, not just Jacob, but the people. Again, this is the last chapter of Genesis. This is as good as things can get before Exodus chapter 1 is like a slap in the face and we find Israel in bondage. But it made me think this week about how grief is not just sometimes about individual people. Just as Egypt maybe is honoring the people of Israel in addition to Jacob Israel, Our grieving isn't just about people as well. It can also be about bigger, more symbolic things. Grief is larger than just the death of those whom we love. Grief is ultimately just about loss, right? We can grieve anything. We don't always use that language because it sounds really heavy and icky to our American sensibilities, but sometimes until we name the sense of loss that we're feeling as grief, it's really hard to move forward well. This last few months, I've been thinking about all the different ways in which we're grieving. We're grieving the loss of life, right? Over 150,000 people have passed away from COVID-19 that we know of, and so many more have died just of all the other reasons people die. And, And not only are we grieving loss of life, we're grieving the inability to grieve that loss of life. I have friends who've had grandparents who've been in hospice that they can't go physically visit and have to say their final words of goodbye through a window pane. There's a cruelty in that. We're grieving in a different way. There's anticipatory grief. Have you heard of this before? This is that that grieving that you feel before it's even happened. The, The loss, the significant loss that you think may be just around the corner. Sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't. But there's that anxiety and that grief that builds up in us called anticipatory grief. There's a really helpful article that I'm going to share later from the Harvard Business Review that gives us some tools on how to deal with that kind of grief. If that sounds like you, I want you to know that there are some helpful practical tips that have been helpful for me during this time. We're grieving the loss of potential memories. You know, we just announced that our day school is closed for this 2020-2021 school year, and that was the right decision and a courageous one from our day school leadership, and I know it's one that brings grief. I think about the first day of kindergarten photos that won't be taken, or the senior year sports teams that won't get to have their triumphant seasons, or the letter jackets that may not get to have as many patches as we expected. I I think about the family gatherings and reunions that aren't getting scheduled right now. We're grieving the loss of memories. 
We're grieving the loss of cultural landmarks. There's no state fair this year. There were no summer blockbusters this season. There's not going to be college football most likely, right? And some of these may sound trivial to you, but one thing I want us to be really clear about is let's not judge one another's grief. Grief is relative, and maybe what sounds trivial to you is what somebody else lives for. Maybe some are blockbusters. There's somebody that that is what keeps them going through the year. There's no theaters to even play them in right now. We're losing our cultural landmarks. We're grieving that. And we've got this sense of grief that also wonders where is the end. We don't see the light at the end of the tunnel yet. We're wondering how long, O oh Lord, do we have to grieve in this way? Do you feel the pit in your stomach? Can we name it and acknowledge it? I love the way that Joseph responds to his father's death and the way that Scripture paints the picture for us so well. You know, Jacob sits his sons down and says, I'm about to die. And Jacob is an old man, right? This is the Old Testament where people live to be super old. So Jacob has lived a long and healthy life. He knows the end is coming. He sits his sons down, gives like his last will and testament, tells them where to take his body. That's what he really cares about. Take me to the land of my family. Bury me there. And so everyone's prepared. Everyone knows it's coming. And then Jacob passes and it's peaceful. He just pulls his legs up and he goes. And you might think that Joseph then should say this was good. He had his life. What a, what a peaceful, good way to go. What a life well lived. But what does Joseph do? What does Scripture show us that Joseph, the VP of Egypt, the, the, the person that has achieved everything you can achieve, he's not weak, he is strong, he is everything we could hope to be. What does Scripture tell us Joseph does? He weeps over his father's body openly. He begins to kiss him because he misses him in that moment so much. And he doesn't just weep for a moment. It says days of weeping. Days of weeping before he can even think about embalming. Days of weeping. Scripture's not trying to paint Joseph as some weak-willed individual. No, this, this is sacred. This is faith. Scripture is saying this is good. No matter how prepared we think we are, no matter how much we think we should be okay, grieving is important. Weeping is important. Missing is important. Something struck me this week. As I read Jacob's last will and testament to his sons, you know, something stuck out to me. And it was a balm for me, and I know it's going to help somebody this morning. Jacob tells Joseph where to bury the body, not where to bury his pain. Jacob tells Joseph where to bury the body, not where to bury the pain. I think about how we're trained culturally, right? When you or someone you know is going through that grieving process and, and you, you meet in public or, or somebody meets them in public and says, oh, how are you doing? How are we supposed to respond? Are we supposed to be like Joseph and begin to weep for days? Or are we supposed to say, you know, I'm doing okay? When inside, we are nothing like okay. We're nothing like okay. We want to scream and say, how do you think I'm doing? But we don't. We say, you know, I'm doing okay. You ever been guilty of that? I, I do that all the time. One of my favorite authors is Henry Nouwen. 
He was a professor at Harvard, and he, and he, he was a tremendous author who was able to take the Christian faith and make it accessible and, and so personal and so grace-filled, and his books are short, and I love that. Note to authors out there, make your book shorter. I was an English major. You don't have that much to say, I promise you. Henry Nouwen was a brilliant author, and he said this in his book, Turn My Morning to Dancing, if you want to look this up later. He says, I'm less likely to deny my suffering when I learn how God uses it. Now, let's hear Henry clearly. Not how God causes it, but how God uses it to mold me and draw me closer to God. I'll be less likely to see my pains as interruptions to my plans and more able to see them as the means for God to make me ready to receive God. I, oh, this, this, this line especially, I let Christ live near my hurts and distractions. I let Christ live near my hurts and distractions. And so the question for me this week was, rather than burying our hurts, can we invite Christ to live near them? To see those places as sacred places, holy places where the Spirit can abide within us. So then we move on in the story and we see Joseph, after he's had his days of weeping, he, he rallies the, the group, right? Joseph is a, is a man of great command and so he gets the physicians working on embalming. And then he takes this great gathering of people, hundreds, perhaps thousands of people to go bury his father in this processional. And, and, you know, this maybe is a simple point and one that could be easily overlooked as well, but it drives home the importance of community in our grieving process. And that's not something we necessarily do well in our culture, is it? We, we, we've turned it into this solitary, isolated act where it's, it's your job to go over there and grieve and come back when you're good, right? And that's not what Scripture suggests. That's not a faithful approach to grief. He receives this community support, and we need to consider how community could be involved in the grieving process as well, because here's the thing, the people who are grieving in our lives may never reach out themselves. We have been trained too long to not do so. People might often appear that they have it all together. They won't show signs of grief, but they're still grieving. And so as the community, we also may not know exactly the right words to say. You may not know how to step into that arena, into that situation. What if I say the wrong thing? I don't know what to say. Well, guess what? You don't know what to say because you're never going to know what to say because there's nothing that they can hear that's going to make it all better. When you're grieving, is there anything you can hear that makes it all better? No, what people want most is, is their person back or that loss to be back. And th there's nothing that's going to fix that. They simply have to work through this. But we can still do a lot as the community of faith. We can cook. We can mow a yard. We can clean their house. We could walk their dog. Now, some of these things may happen post-COVID, but we can get creative in COVID time too. Somebody say, amen. Sometimes it's sitting in silence and watching a movie. Sometimes it's just sitting in silence. It can also be inviting them over to your front yard to socially distance and enjoy a lunch, just to give them a moment of rest and ease from missing. And we also need to not be afraid. This is important, especially around grieving the loss of individual life. We need to not be afraid to say the name of the person who's gone. People often desperately want to know that their person won't be forgotten. And so when you can mention that name or those memories, it reminds them that their person's life mattered. They live on and were impactful. My friends, grief should be communal. 
We've made it individual, but grief should be communal. The burden of grief was never meant to be carried alone, nor were we ever designed to witness a sibling grieving and not consider lifting a prayer, a helping hand, or a space to simply not be okay. When you make space for another person to grieve or lament, you are creating holy, sacred space where the Holy Spirit can abide. And here's the really good news. I need some good news this Sunday. The really good news is that Joseph's story does not end with his grieving. It doesn't end with the burial of his father. No, God is not done with Joseph yet. There's something more. One last scene before Joseph's own death at the end of chapter 50. Now, we didn't read this in Scripture, so maybe this can be a fun surprise for us this morning, but after he fulfills the wish of his father for burial in the family land, Joseph returns home and is confronted by a wound that has grieved him his entire life long. Remember the story of the brothers who beat him and sold him into slavery? They're waiting for him when he returns. And his whole life, they've never had a moment of reconciliation. They, they came back and they, they needed that forgiveness from him. And because there was a famine in the land, they needed some food. And, and Joseph was gracious and provided it. But they haven't had that healing moment yet. He's been grieving this wound handed to him by his brothers from his childhood. And even after achieving everything a man could set out to do, God's not done with Joseph's story. He walks through this moment of grief over his father. And then he's finally ready to receive reconciliation from his brothers. There's a reason the author places this between the two stories of death. The author is intentionally placing the story of forgiveness and redemption in between the deaths of Jacob and Joseph as though to say that the redemption Joseph found in his one grieving allowed him the grace to walk with God through the greatest grief that he faced. Elsewhere in that same book by Henry Nouwen, he says this, By inviting God into our difficulties, we ground life, even its sad moments, in joy and hope. When we stop grasping our lives, and by that he means when we stop trying to control ourselves and everything, control our emotions, shove that grief down, get it out, push it away. When we stop grasping our lives, we can finally be given more than we could ever grab for ourselves. And we learn the way to a deeper love for others. That deeper love is what Joseph found through his weeping, through his grieving, he found the depth of love that he needed for his brothers and ultimately for himself. So my friends, may we grieve and grieve well. And in our grieving, may God abide with us and lead us to a greater depth of love. Amen.